0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. All of that plays into the hands of our adversaries who want us tied up in knots, pointing the finger at each other instead of at them and blaming them for what they are doing to us.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the Cyberwire's Law and Policy Podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co host, Ben Yellen from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. On this week's show, Ben looks at facial recognition technology being used on protesters. I've got the story of ICE and DHS buying up moment by moment mobile device location data. And later in the show, my conversation with Jamil Jaffer from IronNet Security. Prior to joining IronNet, Jamil served as the chief counsel and senior advisor for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and senior counsel to the House Intelligence Committee, where he led the committee's oversight of NSA surveillance. He also worked in the White House during the Bush administration as the associate counsel to the president. So stick around for that. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, let's uh, get things going with our stories here this week. Uh, Ben, what do you have for us?
2: So if you'll recall, back on June the 1st of uh, 2020, there was a large protest emanating out of the nationwide George Floyd protests in Washington, D.C., right by the White House in Lafayette Square. Mm. Things got very heated there. Tear gas was used on protesters. The president of the United States used that opportunity to have a photo in front of the church across the street from the White House in Lafayette Square. Very scandalous. Another thing that happened, and I swear I'm getting to uh, the relevant part of the story here. (laughs) The other thing that happened is there was a protester who punched out a member of law enforcement. He was wearing a tie-dyed shirt. That's kind of all they really knew about him. They were not able to positively identify this protester, but an officer, a law enforcement officer, found an image of this person on Twitter and put it into a facial recognition system and were able to identify him and were able to arrest him. So what we found out from this article is there is a database of up to 1.4 million facial recognition records that's used by law enforcement agencies across the national capital region. And this just represents, I think, the pattern we're seeing of increased use of this technology by local law enforcement. This was previously uh, something that was secretive. It was only discovered because enterprising journalists uh, did a good job reviewing court documents to see how they obtained evidence against this protester. But this is something that operates entirely outside the public view. And 14 local and federal agencies across the D.C. area have access to this. So obviously civil liberties groups are are up in arms. You know, they say this has a chilling effect on on First Amendment rights because people are going to be less likely to show up at protests if they know that they might be nabbed by a facial recognition system. And then, you know, I think it's important to note that these were protests concerning issues around racial justice. And we know, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, Dave, that algorithms used in facial recognition technology are just as If not more so than than we are as human beings uh, Hmm. and make false identifications of of people of color. So that's Hmm. sort of the the two pronged concern here. So uh, law enforcement agencies have arduously defended their use of this. They're saying, I think correctly, that this is a a very effective tool, but I think it's disturbing from a civil liberties perspective just to see the scope of this in one geographic area. And whenever something like this becomes public, I think it really could have a chilling effect on people being willing to exercise their First Amendment rights.
1: Yeah. Uh, Let me me just play devil's advocate here. Not that the devil needs an advocate. But in the article, they point out that this database, which consists of 1.4 million images, is drawn from mugshots supplied by the agencies who partner in this project. They say the system does not contain images from government motor vehicle departments or other public sources that would allow someone who has not been arrested to be unwittingly enrolled in the database. So... I can see the argument being made here that this is merely automation applied to an image collection process that law enforcement already has underway that is a routine part of of what law enforcement does. I don't think any of us have any problem with law enforcement using mugshots. So how would this be out of bounds?
2: So that's a great question. The first thing I would say is those algorithms. We know they're fundamentally flawed. That's what you get uh, using facial recognition that you wouldn't get by, you know, for example, having a human in a police laboratory looking through a bunch of different mugshots. It's just you don't have that same type of bias. So that's that's the first thing I would say. The second thing is not everybody who gets a mugshot ends up being convicted of a crime. You get a mugshot Mm. upon arrest or indictment. I have a problem with using mugshots as a database, especially when we know that people of color, for example, are arrested with much higher proportions than white people, frankly. So there's certainly a a racial justice element to that. I do think this is better than what we've seen from other facial recognition software instances across the country, uses by law enforcement where they are scraping records from the DMV or the MVA as we call it in Maryland, vehicle registration records, et cetera. I mean, I I do think that is more worrisome because that's everyone who drives a car. Um, But I don't think we should take comfort in the fact that it's only mugshots. You know, I, I still think that leaves open the potential for abuse just because of the potentially biased nature of the algorithms themselves and the fact that Mugshots are not necessarily indications of past guilt. And, you know, generally a principle we have in the legal world is we shouldn't judge people based on their previous run-ins with the law. I'm not sure if that's fully applicable to the circumstances here, but it certainly is a principle. Um, And so, you know, I think relying on the fact that people have been arrested in in the past to effectuate arrests in the present is, you know, something that I'm not entirely comfortable with.
1: What about the fact that they were trying to keep this uh, under wraps? That they were trying to to keep quiet the fact that they were doing this. I mean, does that? I, I suppose that points to the fact that they knew they were going to be brought under criticism for it.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they are fully aware that. Anytime such a program is uncovered, there's going to be blowback from civil liberties groups. The ACLU will find out. The Electronic Frontier Foundation will find out.
1: (laughs) And they're going to be pissed.
2: They are going to be pissed. (laughs) Uh, It also potentially can uh, disrupt cases as it did here. I mean, the charges against this individual were dropped. We're Hmm. not exactly sure why that was. The article here suggests that the algorithm itself performed well, but the investigators didn't follow proper safeguards against misidentification. So what that suggests to me is this is still in a trial phase. This is not something that law enforcement is well-situated with. And they're not used to getting to the point in an investigation where their key form of evidence has been gleaned from facial recognition, where they have to justify it in a court document and once you get to that point, once a judge looks at it and says, all right, well, did you actually dot all the I's and cross all the T's, that's where they're, they're going to be exposed. And, you know, for the most part, except when you're dealing with certain areas of classified information, all of these court documents are public record. And so journalists are going to find out about it. So that's sort of the catch-22. I mean, it's a great tool in effectuating arrests, but <laughs> in, if you use it, you're going to have to make it public to one degree or another, and Mm -hmm. that's going to invite the backlash.
1: right? You can't have these questions that we we still have when it comes to the technology. I, I guess I'm still scratching my head and wondering because I would imagine that if you're running someone's picture through a mugshot database and that mugshot database comes up with a few hits, it's not like some law enforcement officer or whoever's handling the the prosecution of this isn't going to then look at the picture that comes up as a hit, compare it to the picture of the, the guy out in public and, you know, use their human brain to decide if that's a, a close enough match to go forward or not.
2: Right. And, you know, as we've mentioned for a bunch of other surveillance programs, That's something we can accept from law enforcement because they have limited resources. There's only so many times you can do that level of investigative work. But when you have something like facial recognition, you just multiply that by an unknown factor where it's not labor intensive. Um, You know, we don't necessarily know how cost effective this all is, but it's not something that's going to use up a lot of law enforcement resources, meaning you can use it on a much larger scale.
0: Right, and that's true right. for
2: everything. I mean, I think we're willing to tolerate police following cars on public roads, but we're not willing to tolerate mass cell site location information just because of the scale.
1: Yeah, kind of throws the system out of equilibrium in a way.
2: Absolutely, and that is literally the uh, what some Legal scholars have called this theory the equilibrium adjustment theory, (laughs) that if technology changes in a way that makes life easier for law enforcement, easier for them to effectuate arrests, then the law should have to change to compensate for that and should be more protective of individual rights and vice versa. So, you know, as individuals gain advanced technological tools end to end encryption, the law should reach equilibrium and allow law enforcement to have the same powers that they did prior to that technology being introduced.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, well, uh, the article is from the Washington Post. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. My story this week comes from uh, the folks over at BuzzFeed, and it's titled, DHS authorities are buying moment-by-moment geolocation cell phone data to track people. I would say this is sort of additional information on something that we've talked about before the folks at the the Department of Homeland Security and ICE have been buying up... uh, This is according to a a memo that the folks at BuzzFeed were able to obtain, a leaked memo. The
2: second most famous memo that BuzzFeed has been able to
1: obtain. (laughs) So BuzzFeed was able to get this memo that shows that ICE is contracting with a data broker who gathers up location data on people's uh, mobile devices, their cell phones, and they're buying up this very finely grained information that can track people from moment to moment. And they're able to do this because they're working with a private organization and they're working with information that this private organization has accumulated publicly, legally, uh, through the use of uh, people giving their permission on their mobile devices to share this information, which... You and I have talked about many times when you we click sure on the have. EULA, <laughs> those EULAs that we all spend all that time reading. I read forty um,
2: pages this morning myself. So yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: that's where they're getting the information, and because of that, they basically don't have to get a warrant for the information. Now the organizations, ICE, and um, the organizations who gather this data. Will say that, and they do say that uh, this information has been anonymized. It doesn't provide the identification of an individual user. But again, you and I know we've discussed that if, if a particular mobile device spends the hours between midnight and six a.m. at a particular location,
2: yeah, we have a every pretty good day. idea what the situation is <laughs> in right. that context.
1: Right. And then between 9 and 5, it goes to another location and spends most of its time there. Not too hard to cross-reference who lives here and works here. That's probably who this person is.
2: Although, as we've also said, easier in the COVID era when many of us uh, aren't actually going into the office to do work. So... Uh, yes. But, but yes, the general, but I, but you know, it will show my geolocation at my house nearly 24 hours a day.
1: Right. The only point I would make there is that it would be probably more difficult, for example, to differentiate you from your wife. Yes, uh, exactly. Who would be going to a different work location. So if that exactly. was a, important, that could be a difference. But yeah, so the whole thing about anonymizing the data, I think that's, uh, it doesn't really hold any water. Uh, it's so easy to de-anonymize this data. It's it's not hard to do at all. Yes, the DHS folks say that they're aware of potential legal vulnerabilities under the Fourth Amendment. In this memo, they state that there are ways for Customs and Border Patrol and ICE to minimize the risk of constitutional violations. They point out that they could limit their searches to defined periods, require supervisors to sign off on lengthy searches, only use the data when more traditional techniques fail, and limit the tracking of one device when there is individualized suspicion or relevance to a law enforcement investigation. Ben, your take on this. Oh,
2: do I have takes. (laughs) Um, So first thing I'll say is, in terms of the constitutional standard, there might be a relaxed standard for warrantless searches when we're dealing with actual customs and border protection, Mm -hmm. i.e. checking people when they cross the border. That's a well-recognized exception. The problem here is that the technology being used is not necessarily limited to border crossings. It's being used by DHS broadly to address a number of threats. Um, That's not an interest uh, that's been recognized for a potential warrant exception you know going back to the 1970s you don't get a warrant exception for protecting domestic security for example mm. so that's one element of it the other element is because we've had this carpenter case we know that real-time cell- site location information tracking of a person for a prolonged period is unconstitutional in the absence of a warrant I think there are enough protections in place here based on the information you shared to indicate that that That's not happening, that they are taking enough minimization efforts uh, so that they're not monitoring individuals on an ongoing seven-day basis, the type of monitoring that would invoke constitutional protections. So I think they can do this in a way that complies with Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, just because Hmm. if they're using minimization procedures, it's less likely that a court would, would hold this to be an unreasonable search. But stepping back from the legal perspective, looking at it from a from a real world view, this is something that's certainly disturbing that, you know, it's, it's a power that two very powerful uh, agencies who have certainly not been immune to taking controversial actions in the past potentially have access to real-time geolocation of not just people at border crossings, but potentially all across the country. So, you know, whatever your view on the legal issues are, I think we can stop and pause and and express some concern about that.
1: So what would be a potential way to put a stop to this? How how could, uh, I mean, is this the kind of thing, you know, where the ACLU, uh, folks like that are going to push back?
2: So a couple ways you could stop this. The first is potentially a change in administration. Uh, We'll see what happens there as we're recording. The uh, election result is still in doubt. You know, this is an internal administration policy, so it could always be reversed uh, if there is a change in administrations. I think the legal avenue is going to be difficult for a number of reasons. For one, finding a plaintiff who has standing is going to be difficult. You know, a a plaintiff would have to have a particularized injury. And most people who are going to be surveilled under this program are going to have no idea that they're being surveilled. Mm. uh, Unless they're prosecuted for a crime, which could happen. But the ACLU would have to wait for that to actually become a case and or controversy. And then, like I said, you know, I just think this type of collection, because it is potentially related to border security and because there are these protections in place to protect against overbroad surveillance, I think would probably pass constitutional muster.
1: What about the collection itself? I mean, I see uh, we're starting to get more momentum, I suppose, from people saying that we need to put a stop to this kind of collection overall.
2: Yeah, I think there's an absolutely valid criticism that government agencies writ large have endowed themselves with unacceptable powers as it comes to surveillance. And, you know, whatever the ends are and the ends might be justified, the means aren't justified. Even if you believe in the mission of ICE and DHS, potentially collecting location information on millions of Americans is, you know, not a price that many of us are are willing to pay. As always, the problem here is that these programs are secretive until they're uncovered in BuzzFeed. And it's just so hard these days for a story like this to to permeate the public consciousness where there'd be a backlash and congressional investigations. Mm-hmm. I just feel like that that's very 2013, uh, 2014 and, and kind of <laughs> not where we are as a country right now given the breadth yeah. of problems.
1: I suppose it's easy for something like this to feel kind of far away, you know, particularly if you're not in one of the the border states where this is more of a, a local issue.
2: Yeah, and I think a lot of people have the attitude, you know, we've criticized this attitude, but a lot of people have it is, hey, I'm not doing anything wrong. If you want to look, go ahead and look. You and I know why that's not an acceptable answer, because oftentimes people are caught up in a dragnet, uh, even if they weren't doing something that would make them guilty of a crime. But, you know, I think that's kind of the perspective of a large portion of the general public. I mean, I see it with some of my students when I ask them, how would you feel potentially affected by this broad surveillance program? And every semester I get half of the students or more saying, well, I, I don't do anything wrong, so what do I care?
1: Yeah. Um, and
2: I think that, that's a pretty pervasive attitude.
1: All right. Well, we got to stay vigilant, right? Stay vigilant. That's the (laughs) message of the day. That's right. Stay vigilant. All right. Well, that is uh, my story this week. Of course, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. We would love to hear from you if you have a question for us. And by that, I mean a question for Ben. Uh, Uh, Don't put that on me. (laughs) You can call in. I'll offer opinions. Ben will offer expertise. Uh, You can call in. The number is 410-618-3720. That's 410-618-3720. You can also email us. It's caveat at the cyberwire.com. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI... Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jamil Jaffer. He's from a company called IronNet Security. But before IronNet, he was the chief counsel and senior advisor for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And the senior counsel to the House Intelligence Committee, your old job, where he led the, committee, <laughs> <I wish. laughs> where he led the committee's oversight of NSA surveillance. Uh, and he also worked in the White House during the Bush administration as the associate counsel to the president. Interesting conversation here. Here's my talk with Jamil Jaffer. As you and I record this, we are weeks away from the upcoming U.S. presidential election Can we start off by just sort of taking stock? Where where do you think we find ourselves?
0: Well, look, obviously we're in a very tough situation. The election uh, is going to be conducted in a manner uh, different than any other election ever in the context of a global pandemic. A lot of people will be voting uh, early, voting from home, uh, by mail-in ballot, uh, more than probably ever before. A number of states have teed up, sending ballots to all of their uh, registered voters. And of course, this is all takes place in the context of a 2016 election that was beset by a significant amount of election interference by a a foreign nation state, the Russians, and uh, a sense from the intelligence community and the Department of Homeland Security and others uh, that not only will the Russians interfere uh, and get involved in this year's election, but that the Chinese and perhaps even the Iranians might play a role in this year's upcoming election. So it takes place in a very difficult situation, a very difficult context, and of course, a hotly contested election between former Vice President Joe Biden, current President Donald Trump, and at least one of those candidates, the current president, uh, being very out front about his view that this election will be potentially, as he's put it, rigged.
1: That seems to align with what we're hearing about, I suppose, the Russian playbook, that that, um, it is as much about chaos as anything?
0: No, that's exactly right. I mean, the goal of the Russians is not necessarily to elect one candidate or another. I realize that's a hotly debated thing and has been a hotly debated thing since 2016, but what they benefit from, and frankly, what all of our foreign nation state adversaries benefit from is an undermining of the American people's trust in the election system, in the results of the election, um, in our rule of law institutions. And on that front, the Russians have been wildly successful since 2016, because they have managed to raise questions about whether uh, President Trump was supported by them, they managed to raise questions about whether uh, if Hillary Clinton had been elected, whether she was uh, corrupt at issues. They managed to raise questions about about Joe Biden and his son and Ukraine, and all of that. They've made us question our FBI, our intelligence community, our own outcomes, the president, Congress, everybody. We've had a, an impeachment effort ongoing. I mean, it is amazing. The Russians, you know, if there were if anybody was toasting. Uh, In the Kremlin, it is Vladimir Putin and all of his cronies who have run what I predict will be viewed as the most successful covert influence operation probably in history.
1: Hmm. I want to check in with you on this story that came out recently about the intel official from the Department of Homeland Security, the whistleblower, and the story about them being ordered not to distribute this report on Russian election interference. Can you sort of start by giving us a quick overview of of the story? and, And I'd love to hear your take on it.
0: Yeah, so look, this is not the first uh, time we've heard uh, allegations made that uh, that there was an effort to suppress discussions coming out of the intelligence community or Department of Homeland Security or elsewhere uh, about election interference. Uh, this has been a running theme for the last four years. Uh, but look, uh, at the end of the day, we've seen actually the intelligence community and the, the head of uh, the National Counterintelligence Center uh, come out very clearly and talk about who's involved in the election, uh, who might get involved, whether it's the Russians, the Iranians, or the Chinese, what they're, What their approach might be. So the intelligence community is out there talking about it. Uh, The Department of Homeland Security has put out a number of bulletins about Russian activities on our systems uh, and the like, uh, and and others, Uh, not just uh, election interference, but other activities also. So you know whether this whistleblower is correct or telling the truth, or uh, you know, or or their perception of what happened is accurate is sort of besides the point. What we do know, right, is that the Russians absolutely. We're involved, and frankly, we're involved on both sides of a lot of issues, trying to create this dissension and anger and frustration among the American body politic in the 2016 election. And what we know for sure is they will do so again, and likely others will also, because to be candid, they have not paid a price for what they did in 2016. We've indicted some folks in Russia, the Internet Research Agency, you know, in the indictment, that will be not be effective because we're never going to get our hands on those people. Congress implemented some sanctions um, on the Russians that haven't been particularly effective, but were, were there, um, and at least did something. But they fundamentally haven't paid a price. And frankly, you know, we've even heard politicians, including the president, uh, go out publicly and say that he's skeptical of whether the Russians did this. And you know, at that at that famous meeting with Vladimir Putin, uh, where he said, you know, I know what the intelligence community says, but uh, Vladimir tell, is telling me they didn't do it. You know, and so. You know that creates uh, noise in the system, also. and I think that's one of the challenges we face because, you know, regardless of whether it's Joe Biden saying that, you know, or his team saying that Donald Trump was has some weird relationship with Russia, or Donald Trump saying I think the election is going to be rigged, or or you know whatever it might be, all of that plays into the hands of our adversaries who want us tied up in knots, pointing the finger at each other instead of at them and blaming them for what they are doing to us. What
1: sort of options would be available? I'm thinking if, if we had an administration in office that didn't have this, you know, this peculiar deference that uh, the Trump administration seems to have for Vladimir Putin, regardless of Republican, Democrat, you know, just any administration, what sort of tools would they have available to them to push back on this, to be able to say to the Russians, you knock it off?
0: Yeah, so to be clear, uh, the Trump administration has done some very aggressive stuff when it comes to Russia. The president has uh, has apparently, if we believe the newspaper reporting, um, has authorized uh, much more forward-leaning engagement by the U.S. Cyber Command, Right? what we call persistent engagement or defend forward. Uh, This is the first time that we've had that as a matter of doctrine, um, and it's the first time that the president, any president, has delegated the authority down to operational commanders to take actions – Uh, against uh, our enemies, whether it's for election interference or otherwise. And so there's no question that this administration has gotten aggressive and has punched back in some way. The question is, is it enough? Right. And uh, clearly, because we know that the Russians are doing more and the Chinese and Iranians are thinking about getting involved, it hasn't been enough to deter them. And so there are reasons to be critical of the administration and say we haven't done enough, but they have. It is worth knowing they have leaned forward and Congress has gotten involved with these sanctions. What more could we do it, it's not just about offensive activity or more forward-leaning activity on foreign systems in cyberspace. We can use other tools, right? Uh, if the sanctions aren't effective, let's get more effective. Let's put more sanctions in place. If sanctions aren't the only tool, you know, we could implement all sorts of trade measures uh, with respect to Russia, including against their uh, oil exports, which they rely upon, and not just not just to us or, or to or to our allies, right? We can we can leverage them the way we did against the Iranians. We put maximum pressure on the Iranians. Uh, to force their economy into a tough position, right? The president knows how to do that. We could be doing more of that. And frankly, if there was more bipartisanship between the White House and Congress, and both are responsible for this, right? You would you would see potentially a more effective effort. Uh, and so, I think that's part of the challenge is we haven't used the full suite of tools we could to punch back. We often this is often the case, by the way, in cyber activities uh, where we don't where we don't do enough to deter cyber offense by others. And that's when it becomes a problem. And in this case, we just haven't really engaged in full-blown deterrence the way we should.
1: As the election uh, comes closer and closer, you know, day by day, what sort of things should people be doing to, to counter this information narrative, to counter this disinformation?
0: So a few things. One, we've really got to think about our election, the threats to our election system as in, in, from a collective defense perspective, right? Today, when it comes to cyberspace, we expect um, every state, every locality uh, to defend itself. We expect um, every company in the economy to defend itself. And yet that's never what we've thought about should happen when it comes to a nation state attack on us. We've always thought, you know, if the Russians were to fly a bear bomber over uh, Minneapolis or Wisconsin or whatever it might be, you know, we would expect the U.S. government to have service to air missiles to defend against that. And yet today, whether it's election interference or, or theft of corporate IP, like the Chinese have been doing to the tune of billions of dollars a year, trillions of dollars across uh, the last decade and a half they've been doing it. The U.S. government is not is not defending against those things, right? And we've left it to private sector companies and individual states and indiv- individual localities. Now, the government has done some things. They've got they've engaged more persistently overseas. Uh, DHS has provided some funding to states and localities. Not enough, to be clear, uh, but they've been trying to get more, and Congress needs to do more on that front. Uh, but frankly, we need to think about defending as a nation. And what that means is, localities need to come together with one another and with states. States need to come together with one another companies and states need to work together and companies need to work with the federal government and with each other across industries, across multiple industries, to really create a whole-of-nation defense. That's the first and most important thing. And then second, as individual citizens who are hearing all this noise and all this discussion about, uh, about election interference and the like, we have to be critical consumers of information. We have to recognize that it is to, in the benefit of the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians to take very real debates in American society about you know, about who the president should be, about whether, uh, you know, and what a a problem the killing of George Floyd was, and recognize that while these are fair and legitimate debates we should have in this country, they are being gaslighted by foreign nation states like the Russians, like the Chinese, who like nothing more than to see these disagreements in our society. And we've got to reject that. We've got to come together as a nation. We're going to have an election. We should respect the results of that election, whatever they are. We should move forward as a nation in a bipartisan manner. There's been a lot there's been a real lack of that today, and we need to get on board with that. And that's a problem on the Democrat side. It's on the Republican side. It's a problem with the president. It's a problem with Congress. We all need to come together as a nation.
1: Do you suspect that the aftermath of this is going to be long-lasting? Is it, is it going to take a long time to to build back the trust of voters?
0: Look, I do worry that, uh, that that's going to be a challenge. But you know, the American voter and the American citizen is very resilient, right? One of the things that's so amazing about our country uh, is the way that we can pivot and turn on a dime and innovate and change things and and move forward, regardless of what's happened to us in the past, regardless of how tough times might be economically, or if there's an attack, whether a cyber attack or a terrorist attack or otherwise, that's really been the hallmark of America. It's been in our toughest times that we've come together as a nation and have accelerated and succeeded uh, to the beyond the wildest expectations of anybody in times of challenges. You look at what happened after the 1919 uh, 19 Spanish flu uh, you see what happened after World War One, World War II. America saw tremendous rates of growth and success. And I think the same is true, whether it's election interference or this pandemic. We have an opportunity to innovate and move rapidly. That is what makes this country great. And that's what we should focus on. But to do that, we have to come together as a nation, put aside all of our stuff, recognize that a lot of what's happening in our country today is being stoked by foreign nation states and push forward. And so the key to that in terms of cyber will be collective defense. And the key to that politically will be coming together in a bipartisan manner across the aisle reaching out and really getting the job of the American people and the work of the American people done.
1: Wow, you actually sound optimistic.
0: Look, I am. I am I'm optimistic because I'm optimistic because as Americans, this is what we do. We take tough times and we make a success out of them. That is what is great about this country. It is what has made us the most successful nation in the history of the world. It's made us the most successful economy in the history of the world. Um, And we forget that at our peril. You know, we look around too often as Americans, and we say, boy, man, things are so much better over there, or they've got better health care, or they've got better this or better that. Let's be candid. We are the world's greatest nation. We should take responsibility for that and action that. And we have to recognize that we have not been our best selves in the last, you know, four or five, six years. We need to be better. And now's the opportunity to do that. All right, Ben, what do you make of that?
2: It was a really interesting and surprisingly inspiring discussion because the message at the end was one of optimism, despite all of these national security threats we face. Mm -hmm. I will note, I mean, we're recording this the day after the election, and a lot of my absolute, we we still don't know what's going to happen, but a lot of my absolute worst fears that were invoked in this interview have not come to pass. And, you know, I think that's a credit to us and maybe to the sustainability of our system. So that's kind of the positive message I took from this interview, that in the face of Russian disinformation and doubts about election security, dereliction of duty in confronting the Russian threat, we're, we're still standing. And I think there's there's something to be said about that. We still had an election where there's, you know, the highest level of turnout that we've seen since 1900. Um, we've exercised our right to vote. There. Weren't any large scale uh, problems with our, our voting systems. So he didn't know this when the interview took place, but I think he might be reflecting some optimism that we have now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me, again, you know, talking about the election that, um, you know, we had briefs uh, throughout the day at uh, the Cyberwire with some of the people from Homeland Security and, uh, you know, the folks who are protecting the election systems. And, And uh, they said it was just like any other day. They weren't seeing, like, as you say, the things that they feared, they weren't seeing, but they also felt like the hard work they had done ahead of time had gone a long way to, you know, making our adversaries aware that best to uh, stand down on a day like this.
2: Yeah, and I can't emphasize enough, they're just an incredible class of people out there who've spent years protecting against these these types of threats. They're unheralded, yeah. you know, they're career employees of federal agencies or, you know, state uh, election offices, they're CISOs in local government agencies but they are, um, you know, in a situation like this, we need them and they're heroes.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, uh, again, my thanks to Jamil Jaffer for uh, joining us, uh, really interesting conversation and we appreciate him taking the time.